0: Gets stuck in your head for sure. <clears throat> well, we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 14 again today in our second part of this sermon uh, series, particularly looking at what we what I call disorderly worship. And last week we looked at the beginning of uh, chapter 14, first 25 verses, and, and kind of laid out some principles that Paul lays out about the order of church, and how order leads to edification, and um, how the Corinthians were disorderly, specifically in the way that they were using their gifts, uh, particularly tongues where they were not interpreting. And today we're looking at some more practical aspects of that. Paul gives uh, really some guidelines for worship And as I've said before, although we are not practicing the speaking in tongues and we are not practicing prophetic revelation, um, the theme and the principle is very simple, that we need to be a, a, a body of Christ that seeks order and edification in our worship. And so these are the principles that we're learning from chapter 14. This will conclude our discussion of spiritual gifts um, which may be exciting to you. Um, I hope that you've gleaned a lot of good information and truth from that to help you. Um, Friday night, we watched a, a wonderful movie called Cessationist, um, which gives a lot of background and video clips and things to uh, things that I've been preaching on. And I would highly recommend that video uh, for you and your family to watch um, to kind of undergird these things that we've studied but today we're going to look at uh, two aspects in the end of this chapter from verses 26 down to the end in verse 40. And the aspects are continually about order. And the first thing we're going to look at is how proper components of worship promote our order. And we can find these things in verses 26 through 33. And I want you to notice at the very beginning um, what Paul does in verse 26 as he lays out um, his argument. He says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you gather or when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all these things be done for edification. So Paul is kind of beginning to summarize and conclude his thoughts. And what he does there is he uh, gives us some very helpful principles in the relationship of order in the worship gathering. So notice he says, when you assemble. So he's not talking about private worship at home where you may uh, gather with your family or you're just studying your Bible, although I think that that order is important there as well. But he's particularly talking to the church. He says, brothers, meaning believers. He says, when you assemble. And what he does for us is he gives us not a specific uh, prescriptive order of worship, but a descriptive order of worship. He's given us their their bulletin, their church bulletin in a sense, of all the different components that the Corinthians would have had or or, or possibly had in their gathering. He says, "...when you assemble, each one has a psalm, each one has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation." Now notice that each one of those components are diverse, and yet they are specifically done in the aspect of order. And that's what Paul's going to, again, stress, is that we are handling each one of these components, whether it be singing or preaching or giving a revelation or, or speaking in tongues with interpretation, it should be done so that we leave the gathering and the assembly better off than we were when we got here informed more, convicted more, uh, growing in, in, a, in a spiritual way more because of what we've heard. And order helps us along that journey. One of the things that I think is helpful for us is, as we try to apply these, these truths, is to think about the components that we have in our church. We too have an order of service, that order of service is, is, it flows week by week in a, in a similar structure and, and manner. We're not trying to be redundant, we're trying to be purposeful. And I want you to think about some of the necessary components of our worship service that should be included in all worship services that don't just come out of thin air, but they are rooted in the Word of God. So, for example, we start our worship gatherings with singing praise to the Lord. Okay? We sing praises to the Lord. And what does Scripture teach us about that component of our gathering? It tells us in Psalm 146, I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. In Mark chapter 14, after the uh, the, the disciples and Jesus uh, went through the Passover meal together, it says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then finally, in Ephesians chapter 5, these are just a few verses, we see that Paul tells uh, the Ephesians, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Singing is a fundamental aspect of our praise and worship to the Lord. Now, you can do that corporately, but you should also do it privately and individually. Throw in, you know, turn on Love if, that, if that's your spiritual jam. And, uh, put in some sovereign grace on iTunes or whatever, uh, device, your Walkman, if you still have one of those, and, and, and listen to spiritual, uh, spiritually rich music that leads you to worship and praise. Okay? It, it should drive us to think about the deep things of God, and it should lead us not to go, wow, my head's full of a lot of knowledge, but it leads us to go, man, we serve an amazing God. Now, we know the reputation of Christian music, right? We understand that it's considered dull, it's considered boring. But the truth of the matter is, is that the world of unbelievers says those things, the critics of God's Word. It takes a spiritual nature, one that's reborn, to find the value in that. To find the value in singing praises to the Lord. So we sing and magnify God in His grace. We read Scripture. We can see throughout uh, throughout the, New, the Old and the New Testament example, examples of the public reading of Scripture. We see in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Moses would stand and what would he do? He would read the law of God to the people in Exodus 24. During exile, we see Ezra um, reading the Scriptures before the people, both in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, and that the movement of God and the public reading of Scripture actually led to the repentance of those Jews who had been in rebellion against God, and they began to weep over their rebellion against Him. And then, of course, in the New Testament, what's really interesting especially for those that are critics against the Apostle Paul, is that multiple times in the the letters of the Apostle Paul, he instructed the churches to have his letters read in circulation to the churches, acknowledging his authority, acknowledging his apostleship, saying that these letters need to be read not just because they're helpful, because Paul knew they were the Word of God. And then of course he tells Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Listen, we talk about this all the time in the church. There is power in the Word of God. Just to hear the Word read, whether you're sharing the Gospel, or you're sitting in your your recliner in the morning and you're seeking to learn the Word of God, Yes, study notes are helpful. Yes, those things are, 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 are good resources. But nothing compares to the reading and the studying of the Word of God. To read it with our eyes, to, to engage with our mind, and in the, in the worship gathering, to read it publicly, acknowledging its authority in our lives. So we sing, we read Scripture, we pray. Early on in the, the very foundation of the church... We see the, the gathering of the early church together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to what? And to prayer. In the, 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 the difficulties and the trials of, 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 the, of the Christian church, we see them constantly gathering together and praying. When the apostles were um, arrested, when Peter and John were arrested, what did the church gather to do? They didn't have a fellowship. They didn't serve a meal. The Bible doesn't tell us that anyway. They gathered to pray. And so we want to be a church that uh, focuses on the, the biblical exhortation to take our requests to God. And to do so not only individually, like, hey, we'll pray for that when we get home in our private study. No, we're going to pray as a corporate body of believers. The preaching and exhortation of the Word Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, Let the Word of Christ dwell within you richly, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The Word of God needs to be instructed. We have to have the Word of God taught to us. It is a part of our Christian journey. It's the value of the corporate gathering. That you are not just studying God's Word individually. That's how some might hear that. But that you you incorporate individual study with public and corporate exhortation. That the Word of God is being preached to you. Now, let me stress both elements. You need individual study of God's Word. You need the public exhortation and preaching of God's Word. Do not neglect either one of those. They are both valuable and good for your spiritual growth and your soul. And finally, I would include the ordinances. We practice the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus tells us, do this in what? Remembrance of me. We reflect upon the the beautiful, what what I would call a, 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 a sermon illustrated in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. We are seeing a sermon illustration when we take the Lord's Supper. We are being reminded of the death of Christ in both his body and his blood that, that is represented so that we can remember what Christ has done. We remember in baptism the new birth in Christ and the beauty of his resurrection so that we can see death to sin and new life in Christ. And the beauty of those things are in, uh, Not only encouraged in Scripture, but they're commanded. Jesus tells us in regards to the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells His disciples, go and make other disciples and do what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are ordinances that we practice. These are components of our gathering that are necessary week by week, month by month, year by year, because they are rooted in God's Word, and they are important for us in our spiritual journeys. So I wanted to highlight those for us, because although they are different than the the components that that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians, it still stresses the principle, which are these components of Christian worship are orderly and necessary. And then Paul gives us some details about the two subject matter of tongues and prophecy. And, and he basically says, let me just be very clear of how these things need to be done. These are like guidelines for tongue use and, uh, prophecy or the use of prophecy in the church setting. He says in verse 27 and 28, giving guidelines for the use of tongues. Notice he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be done by two or at the most three, and each in turn. And one must interpret. If there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Okay, this all this undergirds Paul's message in verse 33, that God is a God of peace and not confusion. So therefore, when it comes to tongue speaking... This is exactly the opposite of what we see practiced in so many churches today. We see that chaos. We understand that to be chaotic and not orderly. Paul says look, if there's going to be tongue speaking in the Corinthian church, there should by no means be more than three, two or three at the most, and each in turn. One person has something to say in a tongue. What's required? That person speaks alone, nobody else interrupts him, and then after that tongue is spoken, an interpreter comes in and reveals the message, the mystery that's being given to the people. And then perhaps another, and then perhaps finally another. Now notice, you don't want to sit through six or seven sermons in one setting, so it's, it's almost as if Paul's even talking about time management here. Right? He doesn't want to lose the, the, the engaged mind in this, this guideline. So he says, hey, two or three tongues, so that what, we, so what, what could possibly be uh, exhorted here is, hey, you need to think about these things. You need to study them. You need to understand them as they are interpreted, but each in turn. And then finally... He says, but if there's no interpreter, what has to happen? You keep silent. Just so there's no confusion, if Bob just happens to be the spiritual gift interpreter of your church, and Bob's sick that day, then nobody's speaking in tongues. Because we don't want there to be any confusion. If you can't interpret, and and Bob's not here to interpret, then nobody's speaking in tongues that day. You can understand the 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 purpose that Paul is giving for these guidelines of speaking tongue in tongues and again he's reminding us of the importance of being edified of growing in our understanding of God's word so that it's not about being uh chaotic or it it doesn't lead to unintelligible babbling and noise making but instead it is focusing on people growing in the word in spiritual growth and sanctification. Secondly, look at the guidelines for prophecy. Very similar in verses 29 through 33. Again, only two or three prophets could speak. And then it says, let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first must keep silent. Again, Paul is focusing on one prophecy at a time, one tongue speaking at a time. For you can prophesy, he says, one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now be reminded, we define prophecy according to uh, what I believe is a good definition from Tom Schreiner. Who says the reception, quote, the reception of spontaneous revelations of God that instruct, encourage, and warn the people of God, end quote. So this revelation would come. Someone would want to give that revelation. They would be given permission to speak, they would speak that revelation. But then something else had to happen. It's interesting that these are two part things. Tongues had to have an interpretation. And prophecies had to have a judgment. Prophecies had to have a judgment. Now, what is that judgment? Basically, it was the evaluation of the prophet to make sure that what he was saying, or what she was saying even, was true. Okay? You can see examples of prophets that were both men and women. Okay? And we're going to get to this... A very controversial passage in chapter fourteen and verse thirty four in a minute. But the prophecies were given, and then it says that there had to be judgment that was passed. And what it seems to mean by that is that there was always an evaluation, not of the prophecy as as much as it was the prophet. Okay, And and the reason I point that out to you is because, as I've said before, the continuationist argument is, well, that's where the prophecy is being judged to say how much of this prophecy is true and how much of it is false. In other words, the continuationists believe that a prophecy can be mixed with error. Okay, that you can just get it wrong. Some of it's right, some of it's wrong. My bad, we'll move on to the next day. My bad. We'll, we'll, we'll pick it up next Sunday. Maybe I'll get it right this time. We looked at this, this past weekend uh, in that G, G3 movie called Cessationist. Examples where prophets went before the people. They went on YouTube and they prophesied a couple things. Number one, they prophesied that Donald Trump would win his election a second term. And you know what they had to do? They had to go back and apologize and say, I got it wrong. Okay. Now, in the Old Testament, those prophets would do that. What would happen to them? They would be stoned. Okay. Now, we're not advocating for being stoned. What we're saying is, is that it's, it's, in my opinion, inconsistent to believe that Old Testament prophecy is different than New Testament prophecy. If you had error in Old Testament prophecy, you were no longer considered a viable prophet. You were a false prophet. And that was your label. You were not given a second chance. People would not follow you and listen to your word. And therefore, the judgment that had to be passed is, is what this person's saying consistent with the word of God? Should we continue to listen to his, his revelation? Or should we pass the judgment that it's inconsistent with the Word of God? It, these things that are prophetic have not come true, therefore he is a false prophet or she is a false prophet. And that was necessary in that time period as much as it was when prophecy was active in the Old Testament. And don't be confused by this church. Brother Adam, Pastor Adam just read from the book of Peter where we are reminded that because the revelation of God has been given to us in its completeness, in the completed canon, that we don't have to do such judgment and evaluation in the same way anymore. We instead look to the Word of God. We do our best as the Scriptures tell us to, like Bereans in the book of Acts, we study the Scriptures ourselves, We own our own responsibility to know the Word of God personally and you hold us as leaders and teachers accountable, okay? Nobody's stoning or killing or maiming their pastors for misinterpreting the Bible. We understand the responsibility that our interpretations need to be correct or accurate to the best of our ability, all right? But here's the difference, The difference is you have the responsibility to hold us accountable. Okay? We, we are open to a discussion of your differing views of certain things. That's totally fine. We are going to have different opinions about that. What we will not hold differing opinions about are the foundational first-tier issues of the Bible, such as what is the gospel? How must someone be saved? Is the Bible inspired and inerrant? We don't don't back down from those type of positions. All right? And so we will argue our positions. We will do so from Scripture. And if we come to a disagreement, then we will have to encourage you to repent of such a disbelief in foundational views and interpretations of the Bible or ask you to perhaps find another church that believes things that because our church doesn't stand on those things. Now, those are first-tier priority doctrines that we're talking about, all right? That is the accountability that we as elders have as we teach you. And listen, we know, as Scripture tells us, we are held to a higher standard before God because we are teachers. We will face a greater judgment for being false teachers if we lead you astray. We feel the weight of that. Okay? So you have the accountability and the responsibility to know the Scriptures yourself, to study them, to come to your own interpretation. You should not just listen to what the pastor says without studying it yourself. All right? But yet we also want you to be able to trust us. Alright? But in the same sense, hold us accountable and know that the word of God is given to us in, with a sufficient um, It's a sufficient word from God that is, is, is helpful and necessary and capable to deal with us in all the spiritual matters that we need to be dealt with and guided in. So To say all that is to say, Paul gives these guidelines. They're helpful guidelines for the church in Corinth. They lead us to the principles that we too need proper components of worship that promote order. All right? Secondly, proper authority in worship promotes order. Proper authority in worship promotes order. We cannot be, we cannot dissect the second section of Paul's words in the rest of chapter 14 from the gathered church, okay? Paul is dealing with issues in the gathering of the church. In other parts of this letter, it's been more personal. It's been more private. Like, he dealt with private sin in the life of two people that spilled into the church. So it was a private sin that was plaguing the church body, okay? Well, in these chapters, in this chapter particular, he's dealing specifically with the corporate gathering. When you assemble. And these are helpful for all churches today to go, what do we need to think about that that, that the Apostle Paul is teaching us that help us form and order our church gatherings appropriately? Those components that we talked about earlier were those helpful components from Scripture. The second section are also issues that deal with the proper authority in the church gathering. Verses 34 and 35. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, this is not the only place that Paul speaks like this in the Bible. Okay? Matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to hold your place there, turn to the right in your Bible, maybe 10 or 15 pages, depending on if you have a large print Bible or not, and go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Okay? So head toward the end of of the Bible, 1st Timothy chapter 2. Paul is dealing with the order of church again in the book of Timothy. And in chapter 2, he says this in verse 11 and 12. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam, he says, verse 13, who was first creative and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. Okay? Now, I would make the argument that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is particularly stressing to the church how a proper order of authority is and should function in the church. In other words, Paul is laying forth a very unpopular anti-feminist position, if I could say that, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It is one of the most debatable and uh, refuted passages from Paul. Matter of fact, certain women in the world hate these verses so much that they hate the Apostle Paul altogether because they stomp upon the freedom of women. In their minds. Okay? And what Paul is trying to do is not teach a cultural issue, he's trying to teach a creation issue. All right? And that is very important for you to understand. He doesn't just say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, oh, and and the support for my argument is look at Corinth, look at Ephesus, this is the culture that we're living in. How does Paul prove his argument in 1 Timothy 2, verse 13 and 14? He goes back to creation. He said, this is how God ordered the world. Notice the order. God created man, and then He created woman. He made that order. And therefore, He is giving men leadership and authority. He's not stripping any women of value. He's not stripping women of purpose. He is merely instructing that order that not only exists in the church, friends, it exists in the home or should exist in the home as well. All right? And so now when we go back then to Paul, dealing with this in chapter 14, some scholars and commentators go, see, Paul's doing the same thing. He's instructing the church of who has proper authority and who does not. Now, 1 Timothy already tells us that women should not be leading men and teaching men in the church. And I could do a whole sermon series on the unbiblical nature of women pastors in our world today. It's a huge issue in our Southern Baptist Convention and across the world. It is a continual issue. We literally, when I go to India... We have women that want to be a part of it because they want to go back and try to teach in churches. And we have to stress to them how unbiblical that is. They can learn and they can understand, but they are not called to be pastors in New Testament biblical churches. And I and 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 we stand firmly upon that in this church. Women can lead in different areas, they, women can teach. They are just not teaching over men and with authority over men. That's what First Timothy chapter, teaches, or chapter 2 teaches us. But what I would say about 1 Corinthians 14 is that Paul is dealing with a particular issue in the church, not the general principle of First Timothy chapter 2. Let me show you what I mean. Paul inserts, "...women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. Right smack dab in the middle of talking about what? Prophecy and tongues. What was this thing spoken in this chapter? Prophecy and tongues. Okay? Paul is not talking about general church leadership. He is talking particularly about prophecy and tongues that are being spoken. So then the question is, if women are not permitted to speak, is he saying they are not permitted to speak in tongues or, or speak prophecy? And to me, to, to answer that, I would say no. Because Paul has already told us previously in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 that a woman must wear a veil if she is going to pray or prophecy or prophesy in the church. He's already said that they can prophesy in the church wearing a veil. So, Paul then is speaking to a different subject matter when it comes to speaking. And what is that? Well, again, folks, I always encourage you to look at the context, to study what is going on around these words that are, or these sentences and phrases that cause us difficulty. And so, let's go back to chapter 14. What does he say right before these verses in chapters 30 through 33? That when prophecy is made, you can, he says in verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one so that you may learn and all be exhorted and the spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets for God is not a God of confusion and of peace as in all the churches of the saints. He's talking about the passing of judgment in the church. So what happens is, is that Paul is still in that frame of mind and he brings up an issue in the church in Corinth. That women were speaking out of turn. How were they speaking out of turn? The immediate context, I think, points to they were speaking out of turn by passing judgment on the prophecies that were being spoken. Okay? Now, we can take that very general and go, hey, the women were speaking and and passing judgment, therefore they were correcting men in the church about the prophecies that were given? Or a greater clue, I think, is in verse 35. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. See, I believe... That this issue was not that women were just correcting men. Women were correcting their own husbands. Men that were prophesying their own husbands. So this wasn't just a corporate issue. This was a home issue. This was an issue where women particularly wives, were correcting their husbands in the gathered assembly and therefore they were usurping the order that God had placed them in and therefore were disgracing and shaming their husbands. Again, it goes back to Paul's argument in previous uh, portions of this letter in chapter 11. If you'll remember with us, if you weren't here during that time, in chapter 11, Paul talks about the same type of order, where women were called to wear veils over their heads. We established the best interpretation of that was that they literally wore some kind of cloth over their head, but there were rebellious women who were trying to usurp the God-created order in the church. They were not wearing their veils in rebellion Versus the women who were wearing veils in their, over their heads in the participation of the service to acknowledge their submission to their husbands. A veil over their head was like a t shirt that they might wear that says, I have no problem submitting to my husband that the Lord has given me. That would be the same thing. The veil represented submission to God's created order, God's purpose in the man leading the husband. So my understanding of this passage simply tells us that in the Corinthian church, there were women who were correcting or passing judgment on the prophecies of their husband, because why else would Paul bring up that aspect of the home? He could be speaking about that generally, but I think it is particular to the situation And nonetheless, then, this passage is not about women being prohibited to speak in church. How would you even participate in church if you could not speak, ladies? And that's the misinterpretation here. Some people go to the extreme and they say, See, women are supposed to just be silent in church the whole time. Well, that's the extreme because women have an opportunity to, uh, to give wisdom and, and to encourage one another. But when we're talking about the corporate gathering, if you interpret this to mean the very order that God has established in the church, then of course women are not given the authority to preach and teach in the church. But Paul's not even talking about preaching and teaching. It would be incorrect to make that uh, application in this passage. Instead, I think it's particular, and all it does for us is show us that in Corinth, women were operating out of order. So let me speak on that for just a second. And I say this with all humility and grace, but in the 20 plus years of ministry that I have been involved in, the number one problem that I have had in church ministry in all different varying situations the root of those problems have always been women who are leading out of order. I'm not joking. I'm not trying to embellish this. It has constantly been a problem in the home that spills over into the church. Most of my critics, most of my enemies in the church... It usually came from a man who was too cowardly to stand up upon biblical truth and a woman who was overreaching her position in the, in the family and leading over him. And it was always leading in an anti and unbiblical way. So the purpose of me telling you that is simply this. We can still learn from the fact that God has ordained authority in the church and that authority is in male headship or leadership. And when, when, when women fight against that and they push against that, hey, listen, you're not just disrupting this body. You are disrupting the created order that God has established. I would encourage you ladies to study faithfully what God's word says about your Opportunities in leadership and ministry does not mean that women are invaluable or worthless in the church. They have great value throughout missions and ministry throughout the ages. God has used women. And you know, a lot of times God uses women because men are sitting lazily in their place, not doing what they're called to do, not allowing God to use them, not being the leaders that God appointed them to be. So women are risen up in their place doing what God is empowering them to do. But you know what God doesn't do and what He has not done in creation faithfully? He has not appointed and given success to female leaders in the church. What are the female leaders of the church that you're most familiar with today? They're heretics. They're false teachers. You don't see them leading churches like Bellevue. You don't see them leading churches like Grace Community Church in in California. They're leading and preaching and teaching heresy. Not just because they're unbiblical in their teaching. They are literally teaching anti-gospel truths from their false interpretations. So I say all that, church, to say that God has ordained these things, these components of God's order and worship lead to a healthy and faithful church. Men, that is a challenge for us to be faithful in leadership. Ladies, that is a challenge for you to be faithful in submission to that leadership so that God would be glorified in what He designed and how He designed His home, the home and the church to operate. Secondly, Paul says... He talks not only about women that were out of order, but he talks about critics to his ministry that were out of order. In verses 36 to 38, he switches gears. Now these critics could have been women, but he doesn't really specify. But he does ask two very important questions. He says, was it from you that the word of God first went forth? That's a pretty, that's a pretty challenging sentence. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone, he says, thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I, the apostle Paul, write to you, the Corinthians, are the Lord's commandments. Paul is literally saying, all you critics out there, all you skeptics, of my apostleship and my ministry, you need to get in line and understand that God has sent me to you. God has given me these words, so you need to respect and honor the authority and the apostleship that you that, that was given to, to me, the Apostle Paul. And if you don't recognize that authority, you will not be recognized. Now... We can take that as pretty egotistical, Paul, right? Oh, well, if you don't accept Paul's words, then you're not going to be recognized. Well, let's back up here. Paul says that these are the Lord's commandments that he's speaking. And so throughout his letters, he's constantly defending his apostleship and the authority that God gave him to speak those words. And how did he give... Or, or how did he visibly manifest that authority for the Apostle Paul? Paul was able to do the miracles that we've been talking about. Paul was able to perform and do things to authenticate that what he said came from the Lord. And so really what Paul is saying in verse 38, if anyone does not recognize Paul's authority that was given to him by the Lord, then he or she is not recognized By the Lord. That's what he's saying. That he or she is not recognized by the Lord. These critics and these skeptics were out of order. Uh, Sadly, after 10 years of going through a very similar situation, I had a a very sad conversation with a pastor in Middle Tennessee yesterday who is going through a similar situation. Situation that I went through 10 years ago this month, whereby people were not only against the very biblical and foundational truths and principles of the Bible, but they ran him out of the church. He faithfully preached to them. He faithfully shepherded them. And they didn't like the doctrines that they that he taught them in the Bible. And so they said, you're gone. We want you out of here. And of course, in doing so, they, they were evil, they were maniacal, they were deceptive, and they were unloving in those ways. And so this pastor's heart is broken. His, hat, his, his heart is broken for the people that he has shepherded for five years. His wife, who's pregnant, is broken over the challenges that her family will now have to face in the, in the weeks and the months to come. And so all I could do was encourage this brother from the scriptures and encourage them, encourage him from my experiences to say, Brother, God is faithful. God is faithful. He's going to usher you through this pain. As long as you are faithful, not to the culture, not to their demands, but simply to the word of God and what he has given for the churches, he will bless you if you are faithful. Just be steadfast. Continue to do what you're doing whenever He gives you that opportunity. And this is what Paul's doing. Paul's answering his critics with the confidence that God has called him and given him the authority to speak these words. And he is challenging the Corinthians to listen. He is challenging them to listen. Listen, the the elders here don't have apostolic authority. Okay? What we say is not ex cathedra, that we are speaking on behalf of God as if what we say is new revelation and inspired infallible words. We are simply helping you explain or, or understand and trying to explain and exhort the Word of God to you. But in doing so, we are seeking to be faithful and we are doing so with the authority that the Lord has called us to have and that you have voted for us to have. And so in doing so, there is even order in challenging those ideas in the church. So in other words, in the Apostle Paul tells us in other passages that if we are to bring an accusation against an elder, we should have what? Two or three witnesses. Okay? And all that means is, is that Paul wanted to create a, a, some guidelines of order to say, listen, we, are, we, we, we could easily fall as pastors. We're susceptible to sin as well. And so therefore, we have to have accountability from you in, in our daily lives as well as what we teach. And so if you have an accusation against your pastor or pastors bring two or three witnesses that can acknowledge that and give evidence of that as well and hold Him accountable. Whether that's me, whether that's Stuart, whether that's Adam, you hold us accountable. Now don't just hold us accountable to your experiences or your feelings, hold us accountable to the Word of God. And if we've violated that, we'll step down. Because God's Word and His church and His glory are worth it. We don't want to lead y'all astray. But we ask you to understand the responsibility and the leadership that God has given us and to submit to that. And we're thankful that you do. We're thankful that you do. That you are so lovingly supportive and caring. You guys love us more than we deserve. And we would all attest to that. In the time that we've been together. And so we want to say thank you. We want to say thank you. And so Paul concludes this chapter of spiritual gifts and focusing on order with just summary in verses 39 and 40. Therefore, my brothers, desire earnestly to prophesy or to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak in tongues, but in all things. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And that's how we conclude our time today, is that we would be a church that seeks to do things that honor Christ, that bring Him glory in an orderly and not a chaotic way. And in those things, He is pleased with what we do. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our church. Thank You for the the life of Christ that was shed the blood was shed and the body was broken upon the cross. Thank you that he died, was buried and rose victoriously from the grave so that we might not only be saved but be united together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this amazing letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians because it teaches us, Father, and instructs us in so many unique and purposeful and important ways as a church body. As we've walked through the last couple years of of issues in our church, the Word of God has just nourished us in these ways. And Father, we are thankful. Even in these recent days, God, the way Your Word has just pointed us to, to biblical truth for situations that we were going to deal with or have already dealt with, to just remind us that You are active and living through Your Word. And we thank You that You speak to these things And give us the wisdom that we need. Father, help us as leaders, Brother Adam and Stuart and I, to to lead well. God, to be humble, to be accountable to our people, so that we do all things to bring glory to Christ in your church. Help us to be faithful uh, and live holy lives in ways that honor you. And God, in all things, Lord, we want to bring glory to Christ. And we want to thank you for what you have done in this body of believers for almost now 10 years. We're so very thankful. We praise You for that and thank You in Christ's name. Amen.